Let's keep in touch, let's keep in touch, keep in touch with me. Drop me a line. Hey, Melanie. <laughs> Why you ask me who we have with us today? Oh. Hey, Amy, who do we have with us this week? I am so excited that we have with us Jeffrey Miller, who is my second cousin, I believe. I looked it up on the internet. Our grandparents were siblings. Even though Jeffrey has been in contact with my dad on Facebook and we've shared mutual stories and experiences, we haven't really had the chance to meet and talk very much. So I'm so excited to talk with you and hear a little bit about how you got into the ESL industry. Uh, Jeffrey's been teaching since 1989. So uh, welcome, Jeffrey, and I'm so glad to meet you and have you on. Well, thank you so much. It's nice meeting uh, the two of you as well, and I'm really happy to be here. Jeffrey, this is really exciting for me. I feel like I'm meeting an elder, you know, and I mean that in the most positive sense of the word. Well, like, you. you know, I'm, I'm really excited to pick your brain and, and learn from you today this is this is really going to be great so jeffrey i think you've probably seen a lot of changes in the elt industry um, but i would love to start by just asking you a little bit about how you got started okay. and uh, what that process was like for you and when and okay well actually i got started back in the summer of 1988 when i was in graduate school i went to western illinois university and of course I was working on my MA in English at the time. And uh, during the summers between my first and second year of graduate school, there was a notice in the uh, English department. They were looking for teachers to teach writing and reading. And they had what they called the Wessel Institute, which was Western's ESL Institute, where students who went to Western and you know, international students, and they had they'd done okay with TOEFL. Now, I gotta remember back in the in the 80s, TOEFL was, I mean, they didn't have sort of the writing component that, that right. they do now, okay? And also, I think uh, in terms of vocabulary, and I know that, of course, they have very vocabulary heavy, but students who scored a certain, they got a certain percentile on the TOEFL test, they were admitted to the university with the belief that they would take extra classes in order to bring the scores up. It Um, sounds to me like a very early stage foundation or what we'd call an intensive English language program today, which is now much more structured than it sounds like it was then. Yeah, so they would would come to Western. And in fact, some students actually would take the class, you know, sort of uh, beef up their, their language skills. So they were looking for for teachers from the English department. Obviously, you know we're you know learning you know sort of you know uh, English department, you know in sort of heavy on you know composition all that that we would teach you know reading and writing. So I applied and I got accepted. It was a summer course and I taught like I said reading and writing. I have it was a very small course. I had a few students from Japan. I had uh, a couple kids from uh, from Colombia. And it was like during the summer. And I was, of course, I'm, I'm taking classes at the same time. And, you know, I kind of just going in there, you know, doing some reading, you know, and to be honest with you, I really had no idea what I was doing. Okay. I mean, I'm teaching it just like I would teach a composition class, give a paragraph, you know, read it, some basic sort of comprehension, have them write a little paragraph, I'm correcting their English. I mean, you know, for the most part, just what we would do sort of like in a, 
in a standard sort of, you know, uh, freshman composition class, but mm -hmm. we were of course, dealing with, you know, international students. Second language speakers. Ex yeah. Exactly. Okay. So I loved it. You know, I thought this is really great because at that time, I really wasn't really sure what I wanted to do with my life. You know, I thought, do I want to go on for a peach? You know, th at this point, this is like 1988. So like I'm 30 years old at this point because I'd done four years in the military. Okay, so I was in the Air Force from 76 to 80, got out kind of, you know, thought I was going to study filmmaking, it didn't really pan out for me, went back to a junior college, went back to study filmmaking, this is not for me, ended up going to a, a, a private university, a small college outside of Peoria called Eureka College. Then I went on to Western to pursue a degree, English and uh, creative writing, because at, at that time, Western had a creative writing program. So here I am, you know, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I mean, maybe go on for a PhD, you know, I didn't, I don't know. So I started teaching, like I, I taught this class and I go, wow, this is really cool. Now at the same time. That's so funny. That's exactly how I felt the first time I taught. I was like, hey, I kind of like this. I think I could do this. Exactly. Now at the same time, one of my friends who, he was actually an a instructor, a theater instructor at Eureka, but also he was one of my good, good friends because his brother was my roommate. He was in Japan as part of the JET program. Oh, yes. And he said, you know, he said, hey, you know, you might want to think about this for a year or two. And I thought, you know, yeah, that's, you know, at that point, I had never really thought about teaching English as a second language. Had so I go ever, back. Had you ever traveled outside of the United States at that other point? Than, other than when I was in Panama, because I was the stationed military. in Panama for two yeah. years back in 76 to 78. And that was the only time I'd been out of, out of the States at that time. So anyways, summer, I, I taught the course. I loved it. And at that course, in, when the fall semester began, my friend, of course, was, was doing a JET program at the time. And then I you know, was doing, finishing up my MA. And it was right around around Christmas, you know, of course, January, it's like my last semester, that's when reality hits you, like, my gosh, I'm going to graduate in five oh my months. God. I better start looking for a job. So again, my friends in Japan, he said, why don't you apply to the JET program? So I looked at it, you know, in the JET program, they, you know, it's, it seemed, it's too sort of governmental for me, you know, too much paperwork. So because when I was teaching at Wessel Institute back at Western that summer, uh, I became friends with a guy named Mark Cleland, and Mark Cleland, he had, he had I taught. I know him. Ah, what a world. Anyway, please carry on. I've met him. Okay, I, anyway. I worked briefly with him in Dubai. How funny. That's right. That's where he was in Dubai. Yeah. So Mark Cleland and his wife were teaching at Wessel, and I guess he had been in Thailand, and he also taught in the Middle East, if I'm not mistaken. And he said, yeah, you know, maybe you ought to get into this field as well, so... So I somehow I got a, a copy of the of the TESOL quarterly. Uh, they had like sort of like you know classifieds, and there was a, there was a job in Japan. It was called the Four Seasons Language School and Cultural Center, and I applied. They sent a letter back and said, "You want to come?" And I said, "Okay." And I sent one other letter to Pagoda Institute, which is located here in Korea. So this was in April. I get, I get a phone call April April seventeenth, nineteen eighty nine, and it's the director saying, "Hey, you know, we got you know, we we like to have you come." So so I went to Japan, but things did not work out for me in Japan, for a number of reasons. Okay, one of the reasons was 
you know, I just really lack the experience in teaching. You know, some people are really good at going to a foreign country and just being able to teach. But to me, it was like, I was like on vacation, you know, and I, I was going to say, are they though? Are they I really? Had, I mean, I, I think a, some people are good at faking it, <laughs> but I don't know. I, what had, I, would I, necessarily... I had a really good time. I mean, I packed in a lot and <laughs> one day I was, no, one day I was, I was, you know, called in. Actually, my director came to my apartment and said, you know, I'm sorry, but things are not working out for us. I don't really know exactly all the details, but it seemed like a, a couple of days later, a teacher showed up who, and just started working. So, I mean, anyway, so. I come back, come back to the States and um, I taught at a junior college. I taught English as a second language at a junior college and kind of remembering what had happened in Japan. I, you know, I obviously am going to not going to you know, repeat the same mistakes. It was adult education class. It was an extension mm -hmm. course and I was teaching. Most of them were their families were already in the States and they had come, they'd got brought their mother or their cousin and they were, I was basically teaching survival English, you know, how to fill out a, a, a application for a credit card, how to, or like, a, you know, open up a bank account, how to pay your gas bill, really practical and functional stuff. And it was really a rewarding experience because finally, I really can see the fruits where, you know, my labors, whereas in Japan, you're teaching English because the one thing I learned about teaching English is that for many years, it seemed it was kind of like, the thing to do to learn English. It was really no one had any sort of like, well, what am I going to do with this English? It's you trendy. Know, over the, over the, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's trendy. Over the years, I students said, well, I want to, I want to watch movies, you know, or I want to travel. Which okay, but let's face it, if you're going to travel, you're not going to really learn a language to travel. I mean, you're going to travel. Most people in a tour group, you're going to go to the same restaurants that the tour group leader wants to take you to. You might speak some of the language, but not a lot. Okay, but this EF, this ESL course was really, really eye-opening for me. While I was teaching it. Again, I'm, I'm still in contact with the Wessel Institute because I, I really want to get back overseas. And again, I'm getting copies of the, of the Tesla Quarterly. And there was another job opening and it was through ELS. I don't know if you're familiar Oh yes, with I'm very familiar with ELS. I kind of consider them like the Starbucks of English language teaching. They are just everywhere if exactly. wherever you are not unlike kaplan kaplan is also everywhere right. uh, but els i think might even ELS, be right. kaplan okay. for English well, language. yeah yes. i'll be talking more about els later because i have nothing but good things to say about els of course at, at the time i mean i've heard a lot of horror stories since then but it was through els and it was they're going to open up a new school in malaysia so uh, I sent off my application to Culver City. At that time, the recruiter was based out of Culver City. Her name was Dory Rank. And she called me back and said, yeah, we got your application. We know we got your, you know, your CV and all that. And uh, yeah, I mean, you seem like, you know, you've got some experience and all that. We had a phone interview. I passed that. And she goes, now I'd like you to go up to Concordia College. We had an ELS school on the campus. So I went up there and, uh, you know, it was like, I'm, I'm in the school and I see all these international students. And I go, man, this is great. I mean, you know, I felt really, really confident that I was going to uh, get this job. And because I play, I got overseas experience. I mean, they're going to, you know, they're looking for, in fact, the entire staff. So I went through the interview and uh, I thought it was, it was great. 
And about four weeks later, I get the phone call and they said, sorry, but um, you know, they were looking for teachers with just a little bit more experience teaching. And before the conversation, before our telephone conversation was over, Dory Rank said, hey, we've got job openings, you know, in Seoul opening up all the time. Would you like for us to keep your file on record? And I said, yeah, sure. About four weeks later, I get a phone call and she said, would you like to go to Seoul? And I said, yes, when? Uh, first week of December. And she said, yeah. I said, now I know it's right before Christmas, but uh, you'll be so excited. You won't even miss home. <laughs> and she was right. So on December 7th, 1990, I landed uh, at Kimpo Airport and began wow. my, my sort of journey. And that's where I've been, you know, of course, been here ever since. Um, and the reason why I thought uh, there's a couple sort of interesting stories here is because I mentioned before Mark Cleland. Well, then later on, Mark Cleland became the recruiter for ELS. Man, that guy gets around. <laughs> so he was like sort of recruiting for ELS. Okay. And um, that that's that's what brought me here. Okay. That's what brought me uh, to, to South Korea back in the 1990s. I really want to get a feel for what it was like okay. to be teaching in Korea in the early nineties. What kind of qualifications do you have? How many, because Korea is such a huge English language now um, now spot. Now it is. I actually, I went to Korea. I want to say about eight years ago, six, maybe somewhere between six, eight years ago. I remember I was in a cafe and I heard two English speakers going over a lesson and I actually heard that their grammar point was wrong. It was, uh, I don't know if you know the expression of busman's holiday, like you can't escape your job. I remember listening, thinking, no, no, you're wrong. That's not the point. But, but my point is there are just so many English teachers in Korea right, now right. and I wonder what it was like then. Now, I want to tell you something about ELS. I loved ELS. ELS was the greatest thing that ever happened to me because at that time, you know, it was run by Shisa Yongosa. And Shisa Yongosa was the leading, if not the, the largest publisher of English education books in South Korea. They were also sort of the, the importer. So they were bringing in stuff like side by side, they're bringing in expressways, they're bringing in the Spectrum series. Now, I, this, these were the books that we used. Okay. Now I know a lot of teachers, they, they don't really like side by side. They don't really like expressways. Oh yes. I've heard a lot about it. I love them. Okay. And probably <laughs> the, reason, the reason for is they reminded me a lot of mad magazine. I don't know why, but the cartoon, <laughs> That's hilarious. but, but, but there's a reason ELS, you know, as you mentioned before, they're kind of like the Starbucks of, you know, of English schools, but at that time, there were three ELS schools in Korea. There was two, there were two in Seoul, one in Cheongno, one in Cognum ELS near Cognum subway station where I taught, and there was one in Busan. Now, the thing that was really neat about ELS was that they they took care of teachers. First of all, as soon as I landed at Kimpo Airport, I was given an envelope. I think it was like three hundred thousand won. I was taken to my apartment. Now, you know. If you want to talk about a wild experience, my apartment was located down the street from Olympic Stadium. It was just about 
100 yards or maybe 200 yards, my apartment, from the Lotte Entertainment Complex, which, of course, now is the tallest building in South Korea, the Lotte Tower. This is where I live. Partly. So you were right. It's kind of the equivalent of, of having like the finest area in town. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. It was only a 10 minute subway ride into work. Okay. It was, it was really, it was unbelievable. I mean, the fact that it was furnished, television, telephone, the refrigerator was stocked. Not, I mean, with basically it was sort of like, you know, some water, some Coca-Cola, some cans of coffee, some yeah. crackers, some eggs. I mean, there was, there were pans, there were dishes. Talk about a great setup. The next day, my mentor came over, walked me around the neighborhood, took me over to Lotte, uh, Lotte World. We got on the subway, went downtown, went to the uh, Insadong, the traditional marketplace, went to Kyobo Book Center, uh, got sort of acclimated. That Sunday took me into the school. The reason why I'm, I'm grinning is that my luggage was lost. When I left Chicago, my luggage stayed in Chicago. So, you know, I had a carry-on bag, but I'm wearing the same underwear kind of like for three days. My first weekend in Korea, I had to buy all new clothes. So I had to buy shirt, pants, tie, shoes, underwear. And of course, underwear, they don't call underwear underwear in Korea. They call it panties. So... <laughs> Two weeks before Christmas, I'm at the Lotte Superstore trying to negotiate with my limited Korean, which at that point was, hello, how are you? Excuse me. And how much are our pack of cigarettes? That was my, my limited Korean. I'm trying to buy underwear and the women are saying panties. And I go, no, no, I'm, I don't want panties. I want underwear, you know. So anyway. It sounds like you you felt very taken care of as a foreign teacher. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and you know, the thing about 1990 is that the Olympics had been over for two years. Of course, the U.S. has been in Korea since 1945. Okay. At the end of World War II, we had military here up until 1948. Then we had Korean military advisors. So, of course, with the Korean War. But since 1953, there's been a very large U.S. contingency located on the peninsula. But in 1988, they had the Olympics. And that was a big coming out party for South Korea. And because of that, there was a lot of sort of, you know, sort of this in that interest, but, you know, foreigners were kind of like a novelty and all that. But ELS, they took good care of us. We had a week of orientation. We would watch other teachers teaching. And by um, Thursday, we would actually, we, we had, we were assigned one teacher, it was our mentor. And we like Monday and Tuesday of that week, we would watch all these different classes, you know, like a lab class, a writing class, a speaking class, but I did watch the, the other teachers. And then with working closely with my, my mentor, I had to come up with a lesson plan. And then on that Thursday, I had to teach a class and then I would get feedback. So Jeffrey, that's that's pretty standard now for uh, teacher training programs. Exactly, that's exactly, exactly what you have to do. So are you kind of saying that you basically did a like a paid teacher training course with ELS? Like they hired well, you and then they trained that, you? That's a good point because at the time, ELS was a really good school for teacher training. Because if you if you came here and you liked it. And some people did. Some people came for a year or two years, and other people, like myself, 
stayed longer. And you, you got the experience is what it was. And the way that ELS was structured was that you can pretty much go in and the lessons were designed for every day of, of the week. And you could, we followed the, there was a book called Spectrum. And they basically took the table of contents and that became the syllabus. So okay. it was all, it was all sort of like tasks, like, you know, like, like lesson one, like begin, like level one introductions. How are you? What's your name? Where are you from? You know, and if you look at side by side, if you look at, you know, any of the, the expressways, it's just sort of that scaffolding, you know, the way that everything is sort of structured, you know, from introductions. And of course, with the grammar, like you would never teach, you know, the present perfect in level one, you would never teach the conditionals, you know, in sort of in book one, you just do the basic. I'm wondering, you know, because that was 1990 and you've obviously been there for a really long time. I'm really curious as to how you think that kind of structure has changed over the decades or, or what you saw as some of the like really big changes in teaching. Yeah, I think the, the, the changes was that I consider myself old school. I consider myself, you know, in terms of we came, we saw, we taught that kind of thing. You know, many of us had very limited, you know, like ELT experience or a background. I mean, they were, they were hiring anybody pretty much off the streets. So ELS, you know, in our, in our schools, they were hiring, you know, sort of part-time workers, okay, to come in. There were a lot of people hiring independence, people made, I mean, everybody had a, had a degree, but not a degree uh, in, in ELT, okay, or, or, you know, even some linguistics or something like that. One of the so, things that I'm finding interesting in listening to your, you know, early year ex years of experience, I'm not sure if you're aware, I actually taught English in Shanghai for a year in 1996 to 97. Mm -hmm. But my experience was very different. I was sort of just dropped <laughs> <laughs> onto the yeah. university and like, well, you can speak English, so go teach it. Exactly. And it's exactly. interesting, you know, what you were saying about the ELS process is just how much structure they had available for, you know, novice teachers to. Right, right, right. Well, that, that's, that's, that's a really good point um, because I heard many horror stories. In fact, I was in the, the Cognum subway station one day and I was, I, you know, when you see a foreigner, it was kind of like, Oh my God, another foreigner. So, you know, right away, you got to start talking to each other. And he told me that he came to Korea around the same time. I'd, he was hired for some other language school and he was picked up at the airport by the director. He was taken directly to the school. The director gave him his book and said, your students are waiting for you. Wow. That's now this, and he, so that, I mean, that was, those were some of the horror stories. And there were, there, there were countless other ones. I had, I heard stories where teachers were, they had to live with the director, that oh their passports God. were taken away, that they had to teach the kids of the director of the school. Oh my God. Uh, that they had, you know, that they had a curfew. I mean, these, I mean, these were the horror stories of course, but ELS, they were, they were sort of the, you know, the cream of the crop. Okay. Yeah, they were investing in their teachers. Exactly. Like. And the thing is that I think getting back where you were talking earlier, asking earlier, was that they had a structure and it was very easy for anyone with very limited or maybe no background in ELT to go in and actually teach a course. And the what as far as myself goes, 
I learned a lot by the people I taught with, people who one who had experience, maybe they did the, the RSA diploma, you know, they had the they had the certificate. People who had been teaching that had been in Korea when they were like uh, with the Peace Corps. They actually were back in the 70s. I actually taught people in the Peace Corps or had taught in Africa or other countries in the Peace Corps. And I began to observe, I began to listen and ask teachers, hey, what, you know, how would you teach this? Or you know, how would this work? And I sort of began to kind of like buddy up with other teachers and begin to sort of, hey, how should I do this? Sometimes I, I, we would team teach. Sometimes I would sit in on classes just to say, well, how, how does that work? How, oh, that's really cool, you know? Let, I think I'm gonna try that. And a lot of it was trial by error. Now, you could get away with that back in the 1990s, but other times you had to be very careful because it was still cowboy time, you know? And I, what I mean by cowboy time, I'm thinking like the cowboy institutes. I think, I, I, I remember I had a, my roommate, uh, he, he had come up from Thailand to teach for a few weeks at ELS. And he was on the phone with his friend. And I guess his friend was like looking for a job. And he told his friend, whatever you do, don't tell him you've been in the joint. You know? My God, wow. <laughs> wow. Good advice, good advice when you apply for a job. But back then people did that. You could go to Bangkok, you can go to Khao Sound Road and you could get a, a, a diploma, anything you wanted or a transcript. Back in 2002, I think it was 2003, Every English teacher in South Korea was forced to go to immigration with a copy of their, with, with an official copy of the transcript and diploma. And the immigration was going to call that university. Of course, you know, it's, it's not going to happen. It was a knee jerk reaction to a bunch of foreigners who were caught out. You know, they were captured on, on, on TV, you know, in Itaewon, uh, drinking, you know, yeah, I'm coming to Korea, making all this money, you know, it's just on and on. So the people freaked out. They had every English teacher. And it turned out that there were a group of Canadians who actually had bogus diplomas that they got from Kaosan Road. Well, so the feeling was, I'm getting here is is one of value. There, there's a lot of the, the word that's coming to my mind, and it's one that has come up many times uh, in, in some of our podcasts is this idea of value. You know, right. your experience when you first arrived, um, clearly you were valued as a teacher. And it's interesting to hear Amy's experience, which, you know, I'm not saying you weren't valued, but uh, it was a little bit more dropped in it. And I think right. that's often an issue with this industry, even when you, you know, mentioned this whole idea of cowboys, which anyone who's been in the English language teaching industry for a while knows about this phenomenon, because right. really yeah. at the end of the day, we all have something valuable which is the proficiency in English language exactly. that in theory you can easily give to someone else. Now we know it's, it's a little bit easier said than done, right. but you know, when you tell me that I, I'm sure there are some people who did a great job who maybe didn't have much training, but they were exactly, exactly. But, I, I totally agree with you. You know, I, I personally think it's good. Those people got busted. Talk a little okay. bit about your experience over the past year. Okay. All right. During okay. the time of COVID in Korea. Right. I would like to say one more thing too about what sure. we talked about earlier, and that is that one thing that I think what 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 I what happened in, in South Korea was that slowly but surely we were able to eradicate the sort of backpacker mentality, mm. where people would come here, and and there were a lot of people who kind of felt that 
English teaching was very easy that anybody can do it, that you could mm. just put in a cassette player, you could put in a cassette tape, push yeah. the button, and that's it. Anybody can do it. And I think the, the thing that was really difficult for a lot of people to realize was that not just that we are replaceable, and this is the thing that we had to try to change the mindset, was the fact is that you can't replace experience. And one thing that I have gotten over the years is the experience. And the only way you get this is by doing it. I, I'll tell you, I had a class of housewives back in 1993. There were no coffee shops like today. There was no internet. They wanted to learn English. So you give them what they wanted. You kind of structured lessons. You talk about like, you know, going here, going shopping. You talk about things. And you kind of begin to get a feel for, for language and you can see how it's being used and how and how how to be able to not teach, you know, but to sort of show, okay, this is how you would do this. And I think we began to sort of see how English can be used, how to help people, because, you know, let's face it, Korean students, okay, they've been studying English for six years by the time they get to university. And they, they are so frustrated that they can't speak English fluently. So it's how you kind of sort of approach your lessons to sort of yes. deal with this. Okay. And that's Although so if I can if I can bring in some theory for a minute, there is the whole idea of transfer value, which is if if you need to learn another language, then you're much more motivated. But if you're already living in Korea and everybody speaks Korean, you're exactly. surrounded. What's, what's really your motivation? I mean, exactly. sure it's it's cool, I guess, you know. Right, 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 right. Yeah, there's that motivation, and I think that's a big factor. So, I mean, there, there, we can. There's a whole other thing we could talk about, but you Definitely. wanted to talk about the, what this past year. Well, boy, gosh, I mean, you got me started. And I don't really, I cannot really stop when I get talking <laughs> like this. So, you might have to have a, another podcast or something down the road. But let's it's let's revisit Jeffrey Miller in South Korea. <laughs> I'm sorry, what was that? I said it's a pretty familiar family trait. We do like we do like long yarns. I can, yeah, and I can, Amy and I have been friends uh, since just a few years after you started teaching. So okay. I am familiar with it. Uh, the past year, wow, uh, what can I say? Living here in South Korea, I've, I've been through a lot. You know, I've been through the 1994 uh, nuclear crisis where we really thought we were going to war. I've been through the 1997 financial crisis, Asian financial crisis. I've been through the 2008 global crisis, other nuclear crises in 2010, 2012. Uh, so I, being sort of in this kind of situation is not new to me. But as a teacher, teaching online was an entirely different sort of thing. But, you know, but it's not new because, you know, Back in the day, we used to have sort of like extension courses, which were done That's by right. video. That's you know, right. I remember IVCC, they used to have extension courses. They used to like on Saturday, they have like this cable access station and they the professor would put up a video and you, know, you have your notebook, your, your, your textbook and you would follow along. How but, did you find the adjustment, the sort of transition from a face-to-face -face classroom to Zoom? Well, that, yeah. Now I teach courses where I have upwards to 60 and 50 to 60 students in the class. And the, the biggest problem for me as a teacher is that I need to see everybody at once. 
I need to see everybody's sort of their reactions. I mean, as a teacher, this is how we know we're doing a good job. You know, in the classroom, I need to see somebody nodding their head or somebody, you know, looking off, you know, into space, or I need to see people smiling. I need eye contact, especially in language. You need eye contact. You need, I mean, language is, is eyes. It's, you know, there's a lot of things going on. That was really difficult. That was really difficult. And of course, some students don't like to have their cameras on. And I'm also teaching students because I'm at an international business school. I've got students from around the world. Right. So I'm not just teaching in Korea. I got students from Kazakhstan, from Uzbekistan, from China, from mm -hmm. Vietnam. I got students in different time zones. Right. So I've got some students getting up at two o'clock in the morning to listen to one of my classes. Wow. Okay. So, I mean, so some students, they don't want to have their cameras on for obvious reasons because they just woke up, you know, they don't, they don't want their friends to see them, you know, you know, and, and whatnot or the classmates. So there was that adjustment. Also, it's sort of the communication, like I'm always looking at my image on Zoom, not at the camera. So I, I'm really weary of eye, sort of thinking about eye contact. And I'm, I always feel like a, this is like how a newscaster must feel. I'm looking into the camera, you know. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is the six o'clock <laughs> evening news. And I'm not seeing I like anybody. it. It's my dream come true. At last <laughs> I have my own show. Exactly. That, but it's it's that is really kind of weird. Sometimes I, I like just to put my thought, my my image off because I tend to look at myself, you know, as I'm talking, which I you think know, not everybody that I'm does. Narcissistic everybody or anything does. here. But that was the biggest challenge. And also the challenges like for English for doing group work, doing presentations. Now I know some teachers, they use the, the breakout rooms, but as I heard from, from my colleagues that some students do it, some students don't do it. That was a bit challenging. So uh, what I've had to do is I've had to sort of restructure my, my classes. I've had to redo my syllabi, the way I would present classes. For example, I have a class called writing and presentation skills class. Now the writing part is easy everything is submitted through Turnitin, okay? It's great. I mean, thank God for Turnitin because everybody, you know, submits their papers. But how do you do presentations? You can't do a presentation in a class because it's not a normal presentation. How do you do a professional presentation where eye contact, volume, all the things that you teach students that this is how you should do it? So I said, well, I'm going to have them do videos, have them record themselves. And, you know, and I've had students put together some really slick videos. What was really neat is one of the things I teach is they have to write a paragraph about um, a holiday that best represents the culture. It's really cool to get videos from students from around the world actually dressed up in their native. Oh, that's clothes. so fun. My favorite activities are tell me something cool about your country. We exactly. don't know. Exactly. So, so I mean, much fun. These are fun and the, the, the students, they love it because, you know, who doesn't like talking about themselves or their culture or their country <laughs> and sharing it and putting it in a video format. So that was one way I had to do it, how, how, how to tweak sort of my syllabus way I would I normally do the curriculum in order to continue having presentations. But there still are some shortcomings. We had we have to be very uh, very flexible the past year. Had to be For very sure. flexible. We had yes. to think think on our feet and be ready for any kind of contingency. 
Some days I come in, I can't log into Zoom. Yeah. Zoom's been waiting for me. What I was going to say was, can you tell us a little bit about what you think the future for English language teaching in Korea will okay, be Okay, like? so beyond sort of post-pandemic, well, I, I think what's going to happen is after this pandemic, I think with the technology that we, we have, that we've been using the past year, I do see that sort of coming more into play. Um, you know, a lot has changed. Um, you know, in the past 30 years, where we, we have the kind of technology that we did not have 30 years ago, the internet, uh, you know, sort of, you know, what we're doing right here, you know, sort of having a Zoom meeting, things of that nature. Um, so I, I kind of expect to see more of that being employed, uh, you know, sort of in, in the classrooms. Uh, but as far as sort of uh, the, the future, there, there are always going to be jobs here. Uh, I, I, but I know the market is quite saturated these days. Um, I think the salaries have not been sort of, you know, sort of, how would I say, they're, they're not really keeping up with, with, the, with the times. Um, and I, I think the next couple of years are going to be some lean times because a lot of programs, because of the pandemic, a lot of things have changed. And I think that we, we may not see as many jobs because now I think people have realized, well, we, why do we have to pay teachers all this money when things can be done online? It's don't have... a very interesting situation, isn't it? it because it on is. the one hand, you're absolutely right. You know, you can have, you know, why should I go to the United States or why should I pay for a teacher in this context when I can uh, just do it online. On the other hand, there is nothing that replaces that face-to-face -face experience. Exactly, exactly, exactly. I totally agree. As a teacher, when I'm in my groove, it's when I'm in the classroom. When I'm online, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm doing a good job. I'm, I'm throwing out the information, I'm you know, lecturing or whatever. But when I'm in the classroom, that's entirely different because as a teacher, we have to gauge the response from our students. We have to see how they are, you know, and we can see, you know, when you, when you see on their faces, when they get something, you know, when they, when something clicks, when they're talking to a, a classmate, we don't get that through Zoom. So what I see is that I oh, think there, there's going to, there's, there's going to be, I think there's going to be a little bit of downtime. I think, you know, I, sometimes I, I often say that the golden days of, 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 you know, of, of English language teaching in South Korea were probably in the 90s. Okay. I mean, that's when, when things were good, when the money was good, when schools were, were a little bit more, I guess, considerate, you know, for teachers. But since then, I think they realized that a lot of us are replaceable, that, you know, that there's always somebody out there to get a job. And I don't want to scare anybody away from that reality, but I think in the back of our minds, we always have to realize that that some people still think that way, that anybody can do what we do. My school actually brought in a teacher training course on how well it was not received, because the fact is that why are you, why are we spending all this money to have a program when all we, while we, we want money, 
a lot of these schools, they, it, they want to be cash cows. It's, they a, it's that do. balance between uh, being a profitable business and, but, but providing and, education. Exactly. Is and, and, and it's something Melanie and I talk quite a bit about. This is something I find very interesting. I feel there's a conflict in ELT because on the one hand, there is a lot of money to be made and there's a lot of money that's actually being made uh, by certain, dollars right in, by certain organizations well, I mean, certain individuals right. there's also the fact that what we're teaching is an incredibly valuable capital you know it opens doors for people it gets people into universities it exactly. allows you access to jobs it gets you the access to different countries exactly That's incredibly valuable however the people who actually do the teaching tend not to be as valued that is exactly. what i have found and i can't quite figure out why what i mean i feel like it's probably really obvious and i'm just missing it but you would think that the person who's actually supplying that thing of value would be fully valued and sometimes well, you know, they are but you're i think this idea of irreplaceability and anyone can do it right. is sort of the other side i mean i remember when i first started teaching and my experience was different. I was in Prague, but like you, it was similar in that the first time I was in a classroom, it was just magic. I loved it. And I remember speaking to my dad about doing this and I really enjoyed it. And my dad said, yeah, well, you know, the great thing about it is it's it's pretty easy. And I felt so angry because I was like, <laughs> oh, yeah, I, it's I, not easy. I totally agree. I totally agree. And I think I, for example, I'm at a business school, okay, and I teach what I what I call soft skills, English, you know, writing, speaking, things of that nature. These are skills that students will, will use forever. I mean, if you're going to get anywhere in this world today, you need soft skills, you need communication skills, okay. And this is something that I, I've learned over the years, and what I always put myself into the student's position of what would I need to know to function in this language or I'm in this situation? So I'm always sort of identifying with my students. Every student is different. Snowflakes, right? Every student is different, you know, snowflake in a good sense, okay? And I must address each student's individual needs. They get the basics, that. but I, I have that. to focus on each one. The thing that I've learned over the years is that I get to know students better than other professors who teach true. content because it's you really they share. It, the whole purpose of, of communication is sharing. Yeah. Sharing stuff that maybe they can't share in their own language. Yeah. I remember at ELS where I had women tell, talking to me and you know, housewives in my class, they would say stuff that they could never say in their own language yeah. because they this, could be exercised. Yeah. But I always think that's the value that I'm giving them something that will help them, whether it's to get a job, whether it's to travel, watch movies without subtitles. Okay. It's something. Um, I totally agree with that, with that whole principle there is that we give value, but sometimes teachers, we're not valued. And it's can we make it rain for teachers? <laughs> Well, right. that's what we're going to do. That's our plan. It's actually one major reason why we started this podcast is with Bounce English, we really want to be kind of a source of support 
for teachers and help them feel valued and find ways for them to be properly valued. Right, so, right. yeah. Well, you know, one, one of the things I was going to ask about is, so when do you think it, for your school or for South Korea in general, you'll start getting back into face-to-face classes? We tried. We tried last November. And a lot of students, they just, they did not want to come back. They did not want to, um, they were nervous about it. International uh, students, you mean? International students, they, I had most of my Chinese students, they, they stayed overseas because of, you know, h- hard to get into Korea. I mean, we have to do quarantine, you know, for two weeks. And it's just kind of fearful. But even students, when they're here in Korea, my Korean students, they said, well, you know, I don't want to be going, kind of nervous about it. Uh, so some students are kind of, they're they're really okay with it being online but uh we tried it in november and we're going to do it for a couple weeks and then there was a a flare-up and of course south korea we're really good at the sort of maintaining sort of controlling things here not like you know for example the u.s not for example just i i have to be it was definitely curious we we spoke a couple weeks ago with a teacher who is now back teaching in china and what she was describing was really this kind of getting back to normal because the situation was so controlled and so i was just curious in South Korea, because I know I hear the Western news, right, but I'm right. curious, how do you feel it's going? Do you think that- We're, we're, we're doing okay. I mean, I don't know about when we're going to get the vaccines, but I mean, I've just gotten so used to like wearing a mask and just doing social distancing and things like that. But I worry more about my kids. I have four kids in elementary school, middle school, and wow. they're really missing out on the best years of their lives. They're missing out mm-hmm. like on all that sort of that socializing, which is very important for kids at that age. Yeah. But myself- I had I had a very difficult time teaching online what we call hybrid courses and the classes because I tend to ignore the students on the computer because now that I have live bodies in my class like oh my god I have real students <laughs> and I felt I was really ignoring the students on Zoom here not looking at the at the camera it's, it was really hard to kind of like adjust while I was teaching because you know I'm in a classroom we have a monitor. I'm looking here. I'm looking over there. It's, and it's, it's more it's difficult. It's not really right. We've talked to other teachers about it. And my older sister, Kathy, teaches uh, high school math and has talked about it. And, you know, one of the things that Melanie has really worked with me on to help understand as a non-ESL professional is that the way you teach a class online is one way, but the way you teach exactly. face-to-face is another. And they're just different mediums. You just have to recognize it. And I think this idea of having some of your students present and some of your students... I, I hate it. I, I hate I, uh, I, the it's, hybrid. It's a service to everybody. I, I feel like, okay, fine, we can do hybrid, but we need an assistant who's going to sort of manage probably right. the students who are online because it's just, it's a different style. It's a different method of delivery. And it's really ultimately not fair to you exactly. or the students. We have really struggled, I think, a little bit with online teaching because we all made that trans- transition really fast. And yeah. then everybody really just wanted to be right back in the classroom, which is great. And I get it. But the problem with that is we're not. And so what we need is training. We need training on how to make those Zoom lessons, I'm going to say at minimum bearable, but actually engaging and effective for the students. I believe that they can be. I've 
really strongly believe that. I don't think it's for everyone. I think right. there are differences, but I think a major problem we're having is we just haven't moved out of this concept of emergency remote teaching. The yeah, idea I, of making I, the pedagogy strong just hasn't really been developed yet. I, I agree. I think that I think we're going to see a lot. Like I know some of the co-TESOL conferences, they're beginning to address how to do this. So I think we're going to see a lot. There might be courses which would be available like this. Depends, you know, not because of the pandemic, but because maybe that somebody's going to come up with this really neat way of like, okay, we can get people from different countries to kind of come together, hearing different accents, hearing different things. So we actually might be able to use the technology. But you're right, we all were thrown into this very quickly. Originally, we were told just you know, you could you know put up videos, and that's fine. Some people, professors did that. And of course, in Korea, the Ministry not of Education fine. said, no, you can't do that. You have to have it's actually online. not fine. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, exactly. This has been a lot of fun. And, um, you know, Korea is a hip and cool place now. It wasn't that way. I like 90, it. It was, it was in 1990, Korea was like a diamond in the rough. And, and now it's happened. a diamond. Things happen, you know, by the time we got to the millennium, we got to like Cognum style, all these things. It's a real hip place. And it's, it's a lot different, very different than it was when I first came here. Things have happened historically here on the peninsula that in many ways have affected English ELT, I mean ELT. Back in the Asian financial crisis, suddenly people could not go to New Zealand or Australia to Canada right. or English to study. They had to stay in Korea. We all thought we were going to lose our jobs in 97, but actually it was a, it was a big English boom. I was going to say, that's the great thing about teaching English. You never know what where you're going to end up or what exactly. you're going to see. Jeffrey, it's been an absolute pleasure. I think it's Thank just you. amazing that you and I know someone, we have someone in common. They're probably right. not even the only one. Like there's probably more because I actually believe the ESL circuit is in fact quite a small world. So I, I, um, I do I do agree. I think yeah, there's a lot. But the fact that we both know Mark Cleland, that was pretty hilarious. Wild. That is hilarious to me. Anyway, it's it's been really lovely. I will say goodbye. Thank you and have a wonderful day. You too. Thank you so much, Melanie. Nice to meet you. Take nice care. Nice meeting you. Bye-bye. Bye now. Come on, baby. Let's keep in touch. Come on, baby. Let's keep in touch.